we'll read Exodus chapter 12. We're going to read the first 14 verses for the sake of brevity, but we are going to study uh, the whole chapter of Exodus chapter 12 this morning. Well, not the whole chapter, verses 1 through 28 we'll study this morning. But for the sake of brevity, we're going to only read the first uh, 14 verses. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of the persons, according to which you shall eat and make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month. And when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight, then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall not let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it, your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout all your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Father, would you give us grace to understand this passage? Would you also help us to make application of it to Christ, our Passover lamb? May we see him in this, and may we listen to his words, and may we accept him as our substitute. If there be any in here who has never asked for Jesus to be their substitute for the judgment that they deserve, I pray that they would not delay. I would ask Jesus to accept the wrath that we deserve, that we would accept his punishment, wherein he already accepted the wrath we deserve and that we would be safe, just as the Israelites were safe inside their houses with the blood on the door. May we rest secure in Christ crucified, for we pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, children, I don't believe it's a children's church Sunday, and I have a bit of a memory for you. I was nine or ten years old, and I'd gone fishing with some friends of our family. A girl about my age, her name was Robin, she was one of our family friends went fishing. We were there at the lake on the dock fishing, and 
something unusual happened because generally when I am in the same zip code, fish do not bite, okay? The curse of Greg Baker curses all fishermen. But on this day, Robin's bobber started going up and down and wouldn't you know it, children, she caught a fish. She reeled it in, put it on the dock, and her dad went up to the fish, and children, he immediately killed the fish. He immediately killed it. And Robin started to cry. She said, I didn't want to kill the fish. I just wanted to take the hook out and throw it back in. I, I wanted the fish to live. I didn't want to kill it. And the dad said, well, Robin, the, the fish swallowed the hook. There was nothing that could be done. The fish was going to die. And Robin cried and said, well, surely you could have done something. And Robin's dad explained to her that by fishing, sometimes this happens. Even if you mean to catch the fish and release it back, sometimes you can't help it. You will kill the fish. And my friend Robin cried and cried some more. In fact, it ruined her day because she realized that whether she meant to or not, she had killed that fish. Her actions, whether on purpose or on accident, caused the death of something else. It made her sad. Well, today we're talking about the Passover, the first Passover. And in this Passover scene, children, we see the death of an animal for no fault of the animal. The animal dies because we deserve death. The animal dies because we've sinned. And God is offering a substitution for our sins. And this passage is the first. It tells us it teaches Israel of the first Passover, of how God will pass over Egypt. And if there's blood on the doorposts and on the lintel, God will pass over them, but there had to be a substitute. There had to be another death because the wages of sin is death. So we've entitled this sermon, I Will Pass, Will Pass Over You. That's the title of a hymn, and I'd encourage you to read it if you want to do that. Let's get some context for Exodus chapter 12. We do have several points, and we have to work through this material quickly. So buckle up. We're going to Ride fast and furious through Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 28. But God has warned Pharaoh of the final plague. And last week we learned that God had been telling Pharaoh all along that the death of the firstborn was where all of this was going. Moses warned him right from the very start, let the people go, lest some plague befall you. And this is the singular plague, the great plague. All the other plagues followed a pattern, but this one stands alone. Every other plague to this point has been leading to it, showing them that there is a great God who can do what he says he'll do. There's no hope that Egypt will have retribution either. For Moses says, as soon as I kill the firstborn, you're going to push my people out of the land and not even a dog will bark at them. My people will be released upon this plague. The plague is coming. Now, all through the Exodus story so far, I want us to know that worship has been central. 
Worship is the main point that we've been driving to so far. Do you remember from uh, Exodus chapter 5, verse 1, God says, let my people go that they may have a feast. In Exodus 5, in chapter 8, verse 8, it says, I want you to let them go that they may sacrifice. And then in chapter 7, verse 16, he says, I need you to let them go so that they may have a sacrifice, that they may serve me. The rest of the book of Exodus is setting up the tabernacle so that there is worship on this earth. God says the whole point of the Exodus, the whole point of bringing my people out of that land into this land is so that I will have worship. He liberates the people to worship, and then he teaches them how to worship. And this is the first instruction of the worship that we've been hearing about all along. Let my people go so that they may worship. And now he tells them, even while you're in Egypt, I want this worship to begin. And so we have, in chapter 12, preparation for the first act of worship. Chapter 12 is Moses, well, the Lord, really, preparing Israel for this first act of worship. Now, I have a summary sentence of this chapter, and you might want to write it down, because it will also encapsulate the rest of the points for the sermon, okay? Here's the summary statement for Exodus 12, verses 1 through 28. God introduces annual worship that symbolizes judgment, deliverance, and identity. Okay? God introduces annual worship that symbolizes judgment, deliverance, and identity. Now, I didn't go quite full-blown Pastor Chris Mac-level animations, but I did put some numbers up there for you so that you could see the points. Pastor Chris is so satisfied by seeing text boxes and shapes, okay? My PowerPoint skills are so rudimentary that when I go beyond bullet points and underlines and italics, I have to highlight it because that took me like an hour and a half. Okay, maybe not that long, but. So our first point is God introduces, second one, annual worship, and third, judgment, and so on, okay? So that will tell you the points that we're going to hit as we go throughout the rest of the chapter. God introduces annual worship that symbolizes judgment, deliverance, and identity. So let's take up our first point. God introduces. The first thing we need to notice about this passage, about the Passover, is that it is God's idea from start to finish. The Lord is the one who's telling Israel how to worship and why. And he's telling them what's important in their worship. Just right here from the very first words, it says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt. And so, you know, the next 20 verses are a direct quotation of what the Lord has said. And then in verses 21 through 28, Moses issues the commandments of the Lord to the elders of Israel. So all the way in chapter 12, verses 1 through 28, all of these are the words, the direct words of the Lord. Now, all scripture is breathed out by God. We have to admit, though, that sometimes in scripture, what we have is a historical recounting. There's a writer who's telling us, what happened? And he's not saying he's quoting the Lord. He's telling you what he said or what they said. But we know that the Lord is inspiring those words. 
This, however, is inspiration of a different category. This is God speaking directly. This is an exact quotation of God to the Israelites, and now we can read in on it. This is the direct communication of God to Israel. I want, us to, want you to notice, look at verse 11 of chapter 12. Look at verse 11. It says, this is, it is the Lord's Passover. Now go to verse 27. You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt. This isn't Israel's Passover. This isn't Judah's Passover or even our Passover. This is Yahweh's Passover. God himself is going to come over the land of Egypt. And he is going to destroy every firstborn in his path. If the members of a particular household have followed his worship words, his judgment will not befall that family, but he himself will pass over that house. He's given these instructions of a Passover ceremony so that we can celebrate the Passover, the mercy that he shows as he passes over people who did nothing more than take him at his word in faith. This is the Lord's Passover. It is the Lord who has been offended by our sins. It is the Lord who has been offended by Egypt. It is the Lord who's been offended by the Israelites' sin. And it's the Lord who's making provision for forgiveness and worship and mercy. It's not us coming to the Lord saying, forgive us in this way. It's the Lord coming to us and saying, herein you can be forgiven. Here's my means for you to be forgiven. Look at verses 12 and 13. I want you to notice the eyes. They're very important. In fact, you might want to circle them because there's many of them, and it's on purpose. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. In fact, you could translate that, I am Yahweh. I am the I am. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood... I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. How many were in there? Six or seven eyes? Personal commitments of the Lord to pass over instead of judging. God is taking ownership of this ceremony. God is taking ownership of this worship as he introduces it to the people. So God is introducing, and that brings us to our second Point, God is introducing annual worship. God is introducing annual worship. Now, I need to be careful here as I work through, and I'm saying this not necessarily to you, but mainly to myself to remind myself. I need to remember that I need to save some of my material for later in the sermon because it will be easy to jump ahead at this point. We're going to very briefly summarize it, and then I'll fill it out in a little more detail later. But as you followed along with the Bible reading this morning, and if we have continued our reading in verses 15 through 28, you would have seen some specific prescriptions for 
this worship ceremony. And a prescription is just that. When you go to the pharmacist and the doctor has prescribed you with some medication, oftentimes that medication has very specific parameters when you're supposed to take it, what food you're supposed to take with it, if any. Um, don't take dairy with this type of medication or you'll keel over and die right there on the spot, so don't do it. I'm seizing. They don't say that, okay? But they do say don't take dairy with some. Uh, and I love dairy. That's why I always take note of that. But at any rate, there's specific prescriptions for annual worship. And what this passage tells us is there are two festivals back to back. Two festivals back to back. In fact, in future years in Israel, these would essentially merge into one event. I think the closest parallel I can think of for our culture is you see things that say happy holidays. And what are they saying? Merry Christmas and Happy New Year all rolled into one. We leave the Christmas tree up. Some of you will have your Christmas tree up even before Thanksgiving. So you just put all those together and it, the, the holidays kind of merge into one. They are distinct. There's distinct days, but they sort of merge. And that's how this played out. There's the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Passover is a distinct festival, but it sort of kicks off the week of unleavened bread, which is a feast that has its own ceremony. Passover is the event that sort of kicks this off, and it's a spring event. It's usually in the middle of April or early March. And God wants Passover to be the starting point of the year for the Jewish calendar. It's always at a full moon, and he expects the community's participation with a meal, a special meal. So Passover is an annual event in the spring that doubles as their new year. And they have a very special meal that goes along with it. Now, I have here that this is like Easter, New Year's Day, and Independence Day all rolled into one. You might even be able to toss Thanksgiving in there if it were required to cook a turkey on Thanksgiving. It's not required, but most families do. There was a required meal here. So imagine having your New Year's festival, Easter, Thanksgiving, and Independence Day all rolled into one. That, that's essentially what Passover was for the Israelites. Then they have a week-long feast called the Week of Unleavened Bread. It's a week-long festival, and it was bookended by these two special worship feasts. One feast was a Passover, a Passover and then one was a special feast at the end of the week. Now, I want us to pause very quickly and hear, hear something. Imagine being a nation of slaves. You, you don't do anything on your own will. You belong to a master. And if you don't serve your master exactly as your master wants you to be, wants to be served, the way that the Egyptians dealt with that is they would just beat you or kill you. You were, you weren't a nation. You have no independent will. You've been serving these taskmasters all your days. And God says, you're going to leave Egypt so that you can serve me. Now imagine this. Imagine, imagine you were a child that had an abusive father. 
He hit you all the time, left you with black eyes and bloody noses and so forth. And then somebody comes along and says, God is your father. For a person that's been struck by a violent man, is it comforting to think God is my father? Be hard, it's hard, right? Because you don't associate father with kind, strong hands, a provider who loves, nurtures. You associate with anger and violence. Well, God knows this tendency. He says, I want you to leave serving Egypt, and I want you to come serve me. And the first way that I want you to serve me is to have two feasts and a week off in between. You don't have to work. No work. Just eat. Be with your family. Enjoy life. Feast. Worship me. Put yourself in the place of an Israelite slave. How refreshing would that have been? God's first worship command is to rest and feast and enjoy. It's a tremendous blessing. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, it's a week-long celebration, as I said. Another important factor that we'll talk a little bit more about in a minute is this was lay-led family worship. There weren't priests to do this. It's very important, actually. Again, I'm not going to run ahead of myself. There were no, there was no professional clergy. There was no special office. If you are sitting here today and you are the head of your house, you're the, the man of your house, this was your job, not your pastor's job. If you were a single mom, you would just latch on with a neighbor. This was family worship. This was family-led worship. Very individual, very democratic, if you will. Everybody in the nation gets to do this. And it's not put aside to a special class of people. This is for everybody. And dads, husbands, lead the way. This festival, this meal, has anticipation to it. One of the great parts about the holidays, isn't it, is when you bring the, the gifts under the tree and the kids see them for weeks at a time and they go, oh, I can't wait to open those and there's great anticipation for the moment you open presents. That's what this day had. There was a certain dress that you had to have at the Passover meal. You, a hundred years after this event happened, when the Israelites were settled in the land, they essentially put on costumes for this meal. They dressed up like they were about to travel for a journey, and they would sit down and eat this meal dressed up like they were going to go traveling. This meal had ceremonies built into it. Early on in the process, the, the, the leaven was supposed to be swept out of the homes. We'll talk about what the leaven symbolizes in our next point. But the leaven was supposed to be symbolized in the home, and so this became a part of the ceremony. What moms would do is they would hide little presents through the house, and they would tell the kids, go look for leaven. Get all the leaven out of the house, and the children would run through the house 
looking for little presents. And they would have a feast and celebrate this way. There were all these built-in teaching points. Slaying the lamb, taking the blood, putting it on the altar. You can imagine eating bread that you're not accustomed to eating to, eating it in a very certain way, making the children, children, some of you will, will really not like this, but imagine me saying to you children, okay, we're about to eat this meal. Go put on shoes, socks, a jacket, and have your book bag next to your chair. It would be an unusual way to eat, wouldn't it? But that's the point. That's what they're supposed to do for this meal as they worship the Lord. So as you can, as you can imagine, this meal, this, these festivals are highly symbolic. And the first thing that it symbolizes is judgment. That's our next point. The first thing that this meal symbolizes is judgment. Let's look at the vocabulary that's used throughout these 28 verses. In verse 12, we're told that God will strike or execute the land. In verse 13, the words plague and destroy and strike are used. In verse 23, God says the destroyer is going to go through the land and strike. And in verse 27, God is saying, after I've struck the land of Egypt. Why is God striking? Why is God plaguing? Why is God destroying? Well, sin. Egypt has sinned. Israel has sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And God judges sin, and God is going to move through this land and judge and strike sin. Wrath and judgment are coming. It's certain. It's sure. Without this, there's no deliverance. But God is going to strike. God is going to judge. Number two, there's a death of a substitute. There's a death. Heads of household had to kill a yearling without blemish at twilight. It could be a goat or a lamb. Apparently, there's very minor differences between Egyptian Middle Eastern goats and lambs, and you have to be sort of a professional to be able to tell what the difference is. You can't tell just by looking. So they, God said, you can use either a goat or a lamb. But it has to be a year old. Now that means around a year, a yearling. The lambs in this part of the country give birth in the spring, so it's easy to tell. You take one of the ones that were born last year, and it needs to be a male that's perfect, without blemish. In other words, it's not about the meal, because a, a lamb with a broken leg tastes just as good as a lamb with a whole leg. It was symbolizing judgment of the perfect lamb which would come, symbolizing the faultlessness and the sinlessness of Christ. And so there was this symbolic act of a righteous one being killed. The lamb hasn't done anything. The lamb hasn't sinned. We've sinned. The killing of the lamb was to be nationwide and without exception. By the time Jesus was walking around on the earth, so many Passover lambs had to be killed that the rivers around Jerusalem would run red 
with the blood of all the lambs that were being killed. Massive death everywhere. You can imagine putting your hands on the head of an innocent lamb that you've been keeping now for two weeks. The tradition is that the father would take the head of the lamb and put its head on the threshold of the main door of the house. Would put a bowl under the lamb's neck and slit its throat right there at the entrance of their house. And you can imagine as a family watching that lamb wriggle and die as the blood spewed out of its neck. You can't help but feel sorrow that this innocent creature had to die because I sinned. It's judgment. There's a prominence of blood in this ceremony. The blood forms a cross-shaped spatter. If you take hyssop, and this week I looked up what hyssop is, I think the closest thing I could compare it to it would be a bunch of parsley or cilantro that you would buy at the market. So imagine just a, a bushy herb that can almost serve as a rudimentary paintbrush. And you collect the blood from the lamb and you dip it in the bowl of blood and you put it on the top of the door. Well, what happens? That blood drips down, right? And then you put it on this doorpost over here and this doorpost over here. And when you connect them, you get a cross-shaped blood splatter from the lamb at the entrance of the house. It's a sign on your behalf. The blood is a sign on your behalf. We're told in verse 13 and 23 that the Lord won't acknowledge your good intentions. He won't acknowledge your heart. He'll acknowledge the blood. When the blood of the lamb is spilled out on your behalf, that's what he'll acknowledge. We're told in Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The preponderance of blood, the vocabulary of death, the substitutionary death of a flawless year-old lamb all point to the symbolic aspect of judgment of the Passover. Number four, this ceremony symbolizes deliverance. You're delivered from God's certain judgment. God is going to pass through and Egyptian moms are going to wail and moan and scream at the loss of their firstborn. But simply because you had faith, you put your faith in the word of the Lord, you did what he said, you slayed that lamb and you put the blood up on your house and everybody came in with you. God passes over, and this was a very real experience for the people who went through this the first time. Imagine the terror. Imagine the terror. You've seen hail the size of basketballs. You've sat in, you've seen the Egyptians sit in the dark for three days. You've, you looked out across the river and saw what looked at first like clouds, but you realized they're locusts in the trillions 
headed toward the capital. You've heard stories about frogs and boils and insects. Your Egyptian lady who gave you jobs to do just a few weeks ago was so was in such pain, lying in bed, covered in sores. And now you're told that God is going to pass over the whole land and kill the firstborn, and you know he can do it. But you're safe in your house. You're delivered because the blood of a substitute cries out for you. And God passes over, and you're delivered. Deliverance in the form of bondage from Egypt. Everything about the meal is communicating a swift escape. Um, So we're given some odd instructions. We're told the meat must be roasted. It cannot be boiled. Commentators tell me that the reason for that is boiling was a much more sophisticated preparation. It took a lot more time. Boiling was something that was prescribed. God tells at other points in time in the law to boil things. But for this particular meal, it was supposed to be hasty. You set up a little tripod and you roasted it. You didn't make extensive preparations. The bitter herbs, these, there's a lot of debate over what exactly these bitter herbs were, but essentially they could be found anywhere. You could just go grab them hastily and, and get them as a little side, make them into a little relish. The unleavened bread was bread that didn't have yeast in it. It hadn't risen. It was essentially a cracker, and you would eat this meal hastily, and so you were supposed to be dressed and ready to roll. You'd have your shoes on, your sandals on, your staff at your hand. Everything about this meal was we're doing it in a hurry. It wasn't an ornate meal. It was a very simple meal. Furthermore, the meal was supposed to be completely consumed, Not having leftovers, that would be a bummer if you really were used to the Thanksgiving tradition. But you ate it quickly because your deliverance was sure and it was time for you to up and leave. God had passed over and now you were going to be free of slavery. You you were under the judgmental hand of God and now you're free of slavery and you're out on the move. Get on the move. Go. That's what this meal is supposed to communicate. And then last... This meal symbolizes identity. The leaven, leaven is a symbol of sin. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 7 and 8. Leaven gets into a a lump of dough and it expands. Um, I'm told that back then uh, they didn't um, have leaven. You know, we can go to the store and buy yeast, right? Um, yeast back then wasn't quite as um, prominent. And so leaven more came in the form of like what we would call sourdough starter. You would take some of that and you would put it inside the unleavened bread and let it sit there for a couple days while it sort of fermented. It would be a little more slow. Or you could take a pinch off of leavened dough and put it into unleavened dough and over time that dough would rise. There was nothing wrong with eating leavened bread any other day of the year. But in this case, the leaven was symbolic of sin, and God wanted to purge out the leaven. 
symbolic. Where God wants us to put off sin. Unleavened bread, however, doesn't emphasize sinlessness. Unleavened bread symbolizes pilgrimage or sojourn. Okay? You're going on a journey. You're about to leave. So you take biscuits, as it were. In the Wild West, they called it hardtack. Bread that could keep a long time. Crackerish material. It was bread that you would take on a journey. It sustained you. It wasn't the tastiest stuff in the world, but it would get you through your trip. What God was trying to symbolize this with this ongoing ceremony is that we're pilgrims in this world. We're, we're only ever just passing through. We're part of God's kingdom, and whatever we have on this earth is transient and temporary. And God was wanting to symbolize to them that they'd been freed, and now they're pilgrims until God finally brings them home fully and finally. Everybody had to participate. If you refused to participate, you were just kicked out of the community, which in desert environs may have been a death sentence. It was a big deal. God wants the Passover sojourn to to define the whole. So he places this at the beginning of the year. The Passover the deliverance we experience, the sojourning through life. God says, this is how I want your year to begin. I want you to remember that you're delivered. I want you to remember that your pilgrim's passing through. As we said before, it's greatly significant that this worship is led by heads of household and not by priests. Dads and granddads were in charge of this. Uncles were in charge of it. Not a professional set of clergy. This was nationwide, and it was born in every home. There were all sorts of teaching points built in. And then there's great symbolism in the fact that they had to eat the entire lamb. Now, the nation was supposed to guess ahead of time about how much they would eat. I'm always a terrible guesser at how much food I'm supposed to have in an event, and I always bring about triple what is probably needed. But I figure that's better than being the other person who kind of underestimates it, and then everybody's taking like a little kernel or two and hoping it stretches like the fish and the bread that Jesus expanded. (laughs) Well, you were supposed to, as a family, you're supposed to kind of guess, okay, this is about how much we're going to eat, If you have to combine with another set of families, that's fine. So two, maybe three families to one lamb. You get together under that roof. You eat as much as you can in that meal. And none of it's to be left over. You consume all that you have. And if you were like me and you overestimated and there's lamb left over or goat left over, you're not allowed to put it in ancient Egyptian Tupperware and keep it for the next day. It has to be burned. It has to be consumed. And again, God is symbolizing the the once-for-all element of 
the Passover lamb's sacrifice, the great chief Passover lamb's sacrifice. God is symbolizing that this is total personal acceptance of this lamb. By consuming it all into your person, you're symbolizing that this is your identity. You're bought of God. You've been redeemed. He's passed over you. And now he's asking you to go sojourn out into this world. And that's you. That's all of you. And I have accepted all of that. There's a total acceptance that eating all of this meal symbolizes. Now, I'm going to make three applications. They're all New Testament applications. As you can imagine, the New Testament makes application of these. As Christ our Passover lamb, I've got three passages. These are three applications for us that the New Testament makes for us. Number one, Christ our Passover lamb offers his death as a substitute for the death to come. There are two deaths, dear friends. There's two. There's a physical death, and there's eternal death. Being cast out of God's presence forever into the lake of fire. It's called the second death. That is where you pay for the penalty of your sin against an eternal God. You owe God an eternal debt, and therefore you will pay an eternal punishment. Christ, however, offered himself one time because he's the eternal Lamb of God, and he took that eternal punishment for you so that you don't have to bear it. All you have to do is take it as yours by faith. I want that. And friends, just as sure as God was going to pass over Egypt and kill the firstborn, so there will be a second death. And Christ is offering a way out for you by his own death. Number two. Christ, our Passover lamb, demands our full acceptance of his gift. In John chapter 6, verses 53 and 54, Jesus says, Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no place in my kingdom. Everybody who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Now, is he saying that we have to eat his flesh and drink his blood literally? No, that's what the Jews were very confused about during that initial speech. What Jesus means is there's no halvesies when it comes to the gospel. Mere knowledge doesn't save you. Even the demons believe and tremble. Knowing the gospel and taking the gospel wholly are two different things. And Christ, the Passover lamb, is demanding that you take his sacrifice wholly and completely. Not just knowing about it. 
but accepting it so that you can be freed from the wrath to come. And number three, Christ, our Passover lamb, demands that we cleanse our lives from the sinful leaven that caused his death in the first place. 1 Corinthians 5, 7. It was our sin that caused him to suffer. I can't remember the name of the Puritan who said it, but he said that to anybody who thinks lightly of sin, let him look at Christ on the cross. Let him look at the suffering of our Passover lamb. And there we get the full scope of how ugly our sin is. So let us not continue in sin. For it is what caused our Lord to suffer on our behalf. Leaven is a small thing. And sometimes sin is as simple as an idea. It's all sorts of bad fruits that come from that idea. But get down to that idea and run from it. I deserve ease. I deserve ease. That's sinful leaven that will lead to all sorts of heartache in this world. And, in, and an example of the type of leaven that God wants you to cast out of your heart. Let's pray. Father, would you give us grace to look to you, our Passover lamb? Would you help us to find our identity in you? Would you help us to take you entirely? And would you help us to cast out the sinful leaven from our lives that caused the death of the lamb to be given? For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.